golden age of Islam hit unprecedented heights of culture and civilization, such that the caliphs felt responsible for consolidating and improving all the knowledge of all the societies that had gone before them. And as an example of this were the famous rules of adab they came up with. What was expected of a person of culture in breeding and learning? What was expected in polite, very elite society? One was not expected to just know this automatically on their own. They spent a life training of absorbing that. And part of this was the great manuals of good behavior or adab. Today, on the golden age of Islam, we're going to look at one of the chief examples of that, which gives us an idea of what was expected of the cultured elite person in the height of the golden age of Islam over a thousand years ago. So please stay with us. Thinking back to a time when Europe was still crawling out of the Dark Ages, when tribes were still battling for supremacy and justice was served by trial by ordeal, you could only go to the capitals of the Muslim empires and see the absolute contrast. Society at its greatest the Golden Age society, which had reached and surpassed the heights of the Persians, of the ancient Egyptians, even the Romans. Well, the idea that respected members of society were supposed to have a background in literature and culture, to have good manners, to be versed in the words and the ideas of great minds, well, this concept, which has been around for a long time and still exists, was really taken to a high level in Golden Age society. You know, we think about it perhaps in terms of British society and the great boarding schools of Exeter and you know, what people were expected there, or even in the, the country club lifestyles of, of Harvard and Princeton in, in our society today. But this is really going to such a high degree that we have elaborate manuals developed to tell you how to act. Well, in fact, the Arabic word that we use today for literature is adab or al-adab. Literally, this word means good breeding and decorum and, and the values for a respectable person who is an adib. Now, when we think about literature in English, you know, our word comes from Latin, and it actually means that which is written. And this, of course, was at a time when people who could read anything made, made them elite. So, you know, talking about literature, being able to read stuff that's written, that was really impressive. But that's all the word meant. So, uh, by the way, if your English teacher tells you that a refrigerator manual is not literature, you can correct them. Oh, yes, according to the Latin, it is. 
But that's not what the Arabic word means. Now, of course, today it, it means the same thing as literature in, in, in English. So we have all kinds of adab. You have spy adab, you have romance adab, you have sci-fi adab and monster adab and so forth. But the actual term really means uh, what is expected in terms of good breeding. And ta'dib is to, to raise a person with good manners and, and values, to make them uh, elite. And the word still has the same meaning today, adab, still means someone with uh, good breeding. It's often used in the, actually, the opposite. If someone's rude, we say qalil adab, meaning they have a very little adab. Okay, well, at the height of classical Islamic civilization, adab was not just a vague thing that you kind of had. This was a science. This was something you went to school and learned, uh, particularly if you were a member of the elite, if you were the son of an emir or a vizier or even an important merchant. Well, you spent a lot of time learning adab. And... We have to standardize this, right? How do we know what is good adab and what is good etiquette? And so one of the, the best uh, sources we have of what they considered good behavior are these manuals that were produced. Now, there were hundreds of these produced, and some of them were huge, uh, these adab manuals. Of course, I mean, this is the curriculum of what you're going to learn over your life. So if you happen to be born a rich kid, Okay, um, you know, so we're not just talking Emily's Post's uh, etiquette manual here. We're, we're talking an entire curriculum. But one of the best known of these, and one we're going to look at today, is called Al-Iqt Al-Farid, or the Unique Necklace. And it was written by a man named Ibn Abd Rabih, which is, um, he was an advisor and companion and teacher to the Khalifs of Al-Andalus, that is Muslim Spain, at the height of its glory. So if you want to know what it meant to be classy in 9th century Andalusian society, this is the book. Uh, so the necklace is valuable for us today, not just for showing us what was good behavior and what was taboo, uh, and also showing us what were the general categories of behavior, what areas were you expected to, to learn. But it also shows us the sources. How did, how did they decide what was proper? How did you prove that? How did you say this was right and this was wrong? How did you back it up if someone questioned what you said or did? Well, for that, today we're going to look at the unique necklace of Ibn Abd Rabih. Okay, uh, Ibn Abd Rabih was probably born in the year 840 in Cordoba, which you have heard before was the capital of Al-Andalus, or Muslim Spain. And it, by that time, it was the largest city in Europe, uh, which, of course, with the shape that Europe was in, that was not too hard of a distinction uh, to achieve. But Cordoba is particularly important in European history as this was the main gateway uh, from which knowledge went from the Arab Islamic Empire, which was the, the repository of 
cultural information to um, just a devastated Dark Ages Europe. So it was a very important as this center of connection. Well, if you remember the history here, and again, I know the way these podcasts work when they pop up on your phone, so you may not have listened to all of them before this, but just a little bit of a, a review for context. The Umayyad Caliphate, which once ruled everything. This was the first big caliphate in the Islamic world, uh, and it lasted for about a hundred years after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. And this ruled the largest empire in the world. They ruled everything from Spain uh, to the borders of India. Well, you remember the big event in 750. They were overthrown by the Abbasid Caliphate, who took over most of everything, but not all. So uh, they never got Spain. The Umayyads held on to Spain. And in fact, when it became very dangerous and hazardous to your health to be an Umayyad in any part of the rest of the empire, uh, they fled to Spain. And so this part never fell. So actually, well, I mean, eventually it would fall um, centuries later, but it never fell to the Abbasids, and it never fell to an Islamic caliphate. So Cordoba emerged as the chief rival of Baghdad, and this is very important. Um, By this time, the time that Ibn uh, Rabih was born, The Umayyad state, which was calling itself essentially a princedom, an emirate, meaning they had an emir, uh, finally had decided that they were going to break completely uh, with the Abbasids, realizing there was no hope of, of ever reconciling. And so in the year 929, the emir... Abdul Rahman made himself the Khalif Abdul Rahman, essentially declaring a rival uh, caliphate. Now, this, of course, is a big deal because the idea of the, the Khalif is he is supposed to be the successor to the prophet. That's what the word means. And therefore, the one leader of the Muslim community. There's not supposed to be more than one. And, of course, the idea, the conception, uh, was this idea of Dar al-Islam, the domain of Islam, which was going to grow and grow and cover more and more of the world until it covered everything. And uh, Khalifa is in charge of that. Well, if you got two Khalifas, there's obviously a problem, right? I mean, they can't both be Khalif. Now, this is not the last time this is going to happen. There's going to be more Khalifs. The uh, the Fatimids are going to establish one and, and so forth. But so this is, this is definitely a big deal. And of course, if it, at this point, Cordoba is essentially declaring itself as a rival to the Abbasid Caliphate based in Baghdad. Well, you gotta, you gotta be good. You gotta compete with them on everything. And they did. Uh, they sponsored science, they sponsored the arts. And it was a big, um, matter of, you know, trying to steal each other's stars. Um, So they would steal the best musicians and try and lure away the best scientists. Well, you want your capital, Cordoba, to be the classiest place on earth, right? So uh, you want to have the highest standards of al-adab. And so that is sort of the context in which Abd al-Rabih is writing. 
Uh, his father was probably a slave of the Umayyad ruler. Now, we don't know a lot about this fellow. I mean, mostly what we know is from what he wrote. Uh, but um, his father uh, became free, and Abd al-Rabih actually rose to be an important official. Now, I've mentioned this many times before, and I don't want to get into controversy here and cause trouble, but slavery in the uh, Islamic empire. Now, most slavery was just as, you know, it was bad, just like, you know, anywhere else, okay? Uh, but uh, lots of people and lots of classes of people could be slaves. So some of them, you know, actually had a lot of power, a lot of money, uh, even though they were technically slaves. And eventually slaves would go on to be generals and princes and such. Now, I'm not trying to make slavery sound good. For most slaves, they were just, you know, manual workers. And of course, slavery in the Western Hemisphere was nothing like this. But just to say, that doesn't mean that his, his father was a nobody. He was probably a very, uh, fairly important person. Uh, Abd al-Rabi, he's a, a writer by trade, and he's uh, considered good at, at what he did, so he spent much of his time writing official poetry uh, proclaiming the glories of his caliph, of the Umayyad rulers, of course, to compete with what the Abbasids are ruling, and this w was a, a big job. Now, I, I mention this because obviously he was very uh, popular, he wrote a lot, and seems the caliphs really like what he wrote. Most scholars today, most scho scholars of literature today, um, think that the poetry that Abd al-Rabi wrote was not too great. It was not the, the best stuff. I mean, and he's not known for that at all. He's not an al-Mutanabi. What he's best known for is this particular uh, book that he wrote, which is, I mean, is a huge collection. Um, this uh, Adab Manual, uh, The Unique Necklace. Okay, so... Uh, why is he writing this? Okay, so for one thing, to show that Cordoba is just as classy a place as Baghdad. Secondly, there's the fact that the Umayyads, who are now setting themselves up as, you know, the rivals, I mean, not just rivals, I mean, the, the Umayyad Khalif is saying he's the guy, he's the rightful ruler of Islam. One of the problems that they always had, and it's one of the reasons they were overthrown, or at least the justification that was used to overthrow them, is they never had a direct lineage back to the prophet. Now, they, uh, they're relatively close, but I mean, this was the whole point the Abbasids used to overthrow him, is that the, the line should stay in the family of the prophet. So, legitimacy is a problem. So they're going to establish their legitimacy not through bloodlines, but through being better rulers. And one of the keys to this is to, to show that your society is keeping up the standards uh, better than Baghdad. Now, um, we should mention here, and of course we've talked a lot about this, of course Baghdad was the center and capital of the uh, Muslim empire for 500 years, but really for much of this time it had gone into decline, and the Abbasid rulers uh, ended up being figureheads controlled by other people who, no matter what other titles they took, always uh, maintained the pretense that they were working for an Abbasid caliph. Okay, so um, 
this is a fairly good time for Umayyads to try and make their claim of, hey, look, you know, we're, you know, we're in charge here and I really run the show. Okay, so anyway, Abd al-Rabiyah, he was pretty well placed to be an influential guy at the court. And by the time he grew up, he was working directly for the caliph. In fact, he served four caliphs, so they all seemed to like his work. Okay, um, but he is again best known for this Adab manual, the unique necklace. Now you may be wondering why it's called a unique necklace. Okay, that metaphor refers to the organization of the text. It is made up of 25 books. By books we mean chapters, although some, some of these chapters are quite long and could be separate books themselves. These are the jewels, the 25 jewels in the necklace. Uh, the central jewel is the book on public speaking because, of course, eloquence was very important, the importance of language uh, in this society. We can't stress it enough. So that's the middle. And then on either side, there are jewels with um, similar names. So the chapter before and after the middle one are called the adjacent jewels. Mm, right, clever name. The ones before and after those two, that would be chapters 11 and 15, are the adored jewels. 10 and 16 are the unique jewels, and so on. And so we go all the way to the outside, and they start to have names like the rubies. There's two rubies, right, and so forth. And the last two, or actually the first book and the last book, are the pearls, Lutlua. Most of them are named after specific gemstones. Okay, so it's the idea of organization. Now, thematically, there's no connection between these. Like, so the, the first ruby and then the second ruby on the other side have, have nothing in common. So it's just an image. Uh, but this is actually important because if you've ever read some of the other manuals of the, this type or collections, I don't imagine you have, or not a lot of people have, well, a lot of them are really not organized. I mean, there's just lots and lots of quotes from people, uh, and it can get confusing. So I think what he's going at here is this is like a memory device. You know, you can memorize the necklace. You can see someone, you know, you know imagine, right, a kid who has to learn this stuff because he's, right, the son of an important official. So you got to learn this stuff, and you get drilled on it. Well, you can remember the subjects because you can go through the necklace. Oh, the first pearl is this, and then the, the ruby is this, and so forth. Um, that seems to be the idea because otherwise the, the necklace metaphor doesn't really do a whole lot for us. But anyway, you can just go through the chapters, read the, the contents, and you can get an idea of what an adib was expected to know. And it's a broad range of topics. So there's how to rule, there's about war, there's how to speak to rulers, there's about being generous, learning, how to give condolences, gets a book, uh, genealogy, poetry, prose, song history, and so forth. So you're expected to know these things, right? It's interestingly um, that these subjects are what we would consider secular. This is not religious teaching at all. And the wisdom, it does not come strictly from Muslims. And um, he takes wisdom, uh, wisdom from Hindus, uh, he takes it from Christians and so forth. Uh, a lot of some of it is uh, pre-Islamic Arab Bedouins, i.e., pagans, and so forth. 
And so it's not a religious book in that sense. Now, there, of course, there are references to religion, and religion is important. But the idea is these are things you're expected to know that are you know, beyond religion. This is about good, um, good breeding and behavior. Well, that might sound uh, good so far be- before you go jump into this thing. I mean, this is not exactly adub for dummies here. Um, like pretty much other manuals written at the time, it's mostly a collection of quotes by other people. And in fact, the author says this at the beginning. He says, quote, My merit is only that of compiling the reports, exercising good judgment, summarizing well, and writing an introduction at the beginning of each book, end quote. In some books, he doesn't actually write an introduction. The part he writes is, is actually really small. The amount of his words in this is, is fairly small. He uses over a hundred different sources um, in this book. And so that's typically the way things work. So if you think you're going to, you know, like this is going to be a self-help book that you get from the bookstore. Okay, how to be a cultured person. Chapter one, eating. And then here's a bullet, you know, list of bullet points. You know, don't wipe your mouth with your hand. You know, don't spit at the table and blah, 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 blah. It's not like that. Right, so you can get to the chapter on, here's the chapter on learning, and he's going to start off with, you know, Omar said, da-da-da-da, and Ziad said, ba-ba-ba-bah. Okay, um, and, and that's the way things were expected to be done, and this shows us really how you established authority. Um, he, he's not just doing this because he's lazy. This is the way authority was established. Uh, it's who said this, and, and whether you were talking about uh, anything. If you were talking about the cosmos, if you were talking about morality, whatever you're talking about, you'd start off by saying, well, Aristotle said this, and Plato said this, and uh, Abu Bakr said this, and da, 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 and you quote all these authorities. And so it's a different way than the way um, we tend to look at things. You know, we tend to focus more on the facts, and if you're um, using someone else's facts, it's only sort of to back up what you, you know, believe. You know, if you think, uh, whatever, you know, free markets are good for the economy. And here's an, an example, and you would give example, and you might mention that someone else said this, but you would have to have the facts. It, it, you couldn't just say, you know, free markets are good for the economy because Milton Friedman said so. So the question you're going to get is, okay, who's he and why do we care? This was not the way. Because, again, we're talking about very polite, educated society. They know who all these people are. You know, so, oh, well, well, Aristotle said this. Oh, okay, so he's an authority. Okay, anyway, what's interesting, though, about his sources are um, they are almost all Eastern sources, meaning from the Eastern part of the empire, uh, largely ones used in Baghdad, and, and so forth. A lot of them are from India and so forth. There are none from Al-Andalus. Uh, and this really seems odd because Ibn Abd al-Rabiyah never traveled outside Spain himself. Um, and so one of the anecdotes about this book is that the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad wanted to get a copy. He heard there was this big Adab manual being produced in Cordoba. Okay, I got to see what our rivals are doing. Uh, I want to get this. When he did, he read it, and he is—he's reported to have s- said, 
They've just sent our own merchandise back to us. Where is the Andalusi material? And he threw it aside. Meaning, okay, here's a, a manual from Cordoba about how to be a well-behaved person, and there's nothing in it from Cordoba. It's all stuff from Baghdad. So it's, okay, you know. Um, he, he was expecting to get an insight into their culture. Uh, you can, we can get an insight into their culture in, in terms of saying, okay, what their culture was, was trying to keep up with Baghdad. You know, here's the latest styles in, in Baghdad. So, um, whatever, it's like if you got a, if you wanted to know about what the latest fashions are in um, New York and you went there and all they're talking about is what they wear in Milan. Okay, well, that's the fashion. It's trying to look like people in Milan do. Okay, um, and so that's interesting about his sources. Uh, but other than that, the fact that he doesn't quote anyone from Spain, he includes a lot of other folks. Of course, Plato and Aristotle are there, as you would expect. The Greeks, as we know, we have great respect for them. Uh, a lot, a lot of uh, quotes from Hindu wisdom. And this was a big source. A lot of wisdom, particularly wisdom about rulership, uh, came from Hindu sources, and probably the best-known um, example of that in Arabic literature is the collection Kalila Wadimna. Uh, we tend to think of them today as animal stories for kids, but this was actually wisdom stories for Hindu kings, and it, it all takes place in India. Uh, he, he does those. He has several uh, vague references to poets or just the ancients, al-Qudama, meaning the old folks. So this, not telling you who they are, but this is just what they say. Many of them just say, a wise person said, quote. Um, now, interestingly, some, some modern commentators describe this as a sign of imperialism. The idea, and it's, you know, the nowadays there's big uh, sensitivity to cultural appropriation, you know, using stuff from someone else's culture or, you know, just pure old imperialism that now that uh, Islam is the dominant empire and they control India and so now they're taking all the Indian stories. Uh, I mean, that's one way of looking at it. The way they're looking at it, of course, is that... Uh, Dar al-Islam is, is the future. Uh, the Islam is going to come to rule the entire world. That is our um, mission. We've been given this mission. And so, therefore, we're incorporating all this and putting it together. So it's um, very, very interesting the way different people uh, look at this. Uh, anyway, however... Um, most of the sources he cites are Muslim sources. There are, of course, verses from the Quran and the Hadith of the Prophet. And these tend to always to be the first things. So you always want to start off with this. And then the others are elaborating on that. Uh, so the largest source that they have are from previous Muslim rulers. A lot of uh, khalifs and princes and generals. Most of us have never heard of them. But they are generally, when you, when you look at, okay, who is this person? A lot of them are usually great Umayyad figures. 
uh, from the times when the Umayyad caliphs ruled everything. Of course, you know why. Um, he, he does actually make reference to a lot of Abbasid sources, like Abbasid caliphs like al-Ma'mun. So he is paying respect to them. But you definitely, since we're the Umayyads, we're the inheritors of the Umayyad heritage, we definitely want to use Umayyad sources to show how wise they were. So, for example, uh, he has a lot of wisdom anecdotes from Yazid, Yazid, the son of Muawiyah, who is the second Umayyad caliph, but basically it's the appointment of Yazid that establishes the Umayyad dynasty. Well, as you know from our previous lessons, Yazid is generally seen as a bad guy uh, outside Umayyad circles, particularly among the Abbasids, and of course the Shia hate him. Uh, every year they role-play Yazid killing uh, killing their imams, okay? But here, you know, he's portrayed as a very wise guy. Why? Because this is, this is again, the Umayyad Caliphate. Okay, uh, but even he, we've got stories from uh, the ancient Persians, like Ardashir. Uh, and so this is, I mean, technically not a Muslim source, but if you remember from the Abbasids, they have Persian roots, and they really are adopting a lot of Persian culture. So just to show, okay, over here in, in Spain, you know, we know the best stuff from Persian culture as well. Okay. But he is a little bit careful when he quotes someone like Ardashir, is to use quotes that sound compatible with Islam. You know, they did this with, with Aristotle all the time. Like, for example, uh, they have Ardashir advising his son to, quote, let your gifts go to those who fight and your joy to the people of religion. Quote, okay, now, now Ardashir was not, he was not a Muslim, but he's talking about religion. So, okay, well, that's, that's pretty good. Okay, uh, so a lot of these anecdotes get grouped under general headings, like the duties of the ruler, the duties of the advisor, how to keep secrets, and so on. Uh, but when you get into those sections, you're not going to get like clear bullet comments. Okay, this is how to keep a secret, step one, two, three, four. What you're going to get is a bunch of anecdotes and stories. And in, in some cases, we can read some of these stories and... From our cultural context, you read them and you're okay, well, like, what, what was the point there? I don't, I don't get the lesson in that one. Some of them seem to contradict other ones. Um, but you, you can notice some general concepts in here. So I want to look a little bit at the first book, which is one of the ones that is quoted the most. That's the uh, Lutloa, the Book of the Pearl, and it's about rulership. And he makes it clear. He says very, very much right at the beginning, uh, rulership is a divine mandate from God, and God wants people to be loyal. Now, you can see why this would appeal to rulers. I mean, this is a book that's being commissioned by the caliph, and it's going to be used by the caliph. Okay, so that's, uh, that's something he's going to like. Uh, but he, he goes on to quote both uh, Bedouin sources and the prophet and, and so forth. Uh, he says, a just leader is better than a pouring rain. Now, of course, in, in desert culture, a downpour is like the best thing you can have, right? A great leader is better than a pouring rain. 
but an unjust leader is better than civil strife or fitna. That's fitna means chaos and strife. So, yeah, it's, it's great if you have a good leader, but a lousy leader is better than no leaders. And even if you have a lousy leader, you better obey them. Okay. Um, then he makes a statement. He says, what God restrains by rulers is more than he restrains by the Quran. Now, that is, of course, a bold statement. Anytime you're comparing what something does to the Quran, and particularly if you say it does more than the Quran, uh, that's a very bold statement. Okay, But what it's reflecting is an important theme here. He's not saying it's more important, but more specific things. Right? There's, you know, the Quran is largely in general with some specific um, laws, but what God actually implements and restrains is through the ruler. That's where all the little details get done. Okay, now, if you hear that, you can see why, you know, perhaps a very conservative Muslim jurist would oppose that right there. They'd say, no, no, no. Uh, if anything, you would say it's through Islamic law, not through the ruler. Right? I mean, these are these are different things. You know, it's the Islamic law which we establish and we interpret, not through the person of the ruler. But he's saying it's through uh, through the leadership. Okay, um, and, and he goes on here to say. Uh, I mean, it gets really really strong. He he. Um, he refers to leaders as God's protection for his people. His shadow over his worshipers uh, is through them that God protects our wives, our womenfolk, avenges us when we are wronged, and calms our fears. Okay, so this, I mean, this mandate of heaven stuff is nothing new. Right? I mean, you see this, in, I mean, every monarchy has this. Um, even ones that have very open and vague concepts of heaven and divine powers, the idea that the, the emperor is divine is, is, you know, I mean, you find that almost everywhere. But what we really note here is the terminology that Abdurrabih uses, and this gets lost in translation. Um, so you have to look at what he's actually saying. Uh, in other cultures, it's very much the person of the king or the emperor that is divine, right? The son of heaven. The Chinese emperors were the son of heaven. Uh, when we think of the Japanese emperor was divine, um, I mean, it still, still is technically, but particularly when we think of, you know, through World War II, the emperor was divine, right? The emperor's voice had never been heard on the radio until the surrender, and, and that's what sh shocked uh, Japanese people. Um, officials were expected to commit suicide if they mispronounced a word when they were reading one of the emperor's proclamations. So this is really important. I mean, you know, the emperor himself is, you know, not fully human. Now, of course, in Islam, that would be idolatry. So in this Islamic context, it's the institution that is being described. And so the translation gets a, a little bit tricky, but the Arab words that he uses makes it clear that he's referring to the apparatus, the institution of political rule, not the individual. And the main one he uses is the word sulta. Sulta is where we get the word sultan from. Sulta basically means authority or ruling power. Now a sultan 
is the person who has the power. But Sulta is what he's talking about, just the idea of literally power or authority. And that's what he's saying is the protection of God's people, is, is God's shadow over his worshipers. Not the individual person, right? The individual person, now he does say that God appoints, grants his favor to the ruler and makes him that, but it's the institution. So the idea here is that God establishes the institution of political rule, gives his law, and that's what he uses to control more than he does with the Quran, according to this. And the sultan, or the khalif, or the emir, is just a tool in this. And that's very important. Uh, even today, the king of Saudi Arabia is officially known as uh, Khadam al-Haramayn al-Sharifayn, meaning the custodian of the two holy sites, which are Mecca and Medina. Uh, now, when they refer to him in English, they call him the king. But almost in, in every source, if you look at an Arabic newspaper, he's always referred to as that, the custodian. And ceremonially... Um, the king of Saudi Arabia still washes the Kaaba and Mecca before every Hajj season. Now, I mean, basically it's a ceremony. He goes out there and, and washes it a little bit. He doesn't wash the whole thing. But it, that's the idea. I mean, that he is the servant. He's the one appointed to be the servant. Uh, but he's just the servant of the holy sites. The power, the power is God. That's why also in Saudi Arabia, you don't find any monuments to the kings. There are no statues of kings. There are no tombs that you can visit for the kings. And their birthdays are not holidays. Why? Because they're not divine personages. Right? It's the institution that's divine. But, of course, if it's the institution that is, you know, God's tool, and he puts the ruler in place then you, as a citizen, well, disobeying that ruler is still, you're still disobeying God. So it ends up being very similar to you. So that's one side of it, really pushing this, this loyalty point. And, and you can see why that would appeal particularly to Umayyads. You know, when the Abbasids come along, they try and justify their position based on their lineage, based on their blood. The Shia, Shia leaders absolutely do that. Shia leadership um, is by blood, bloodline. And the Umayyads know that that's, that's what they don't have. So here, he's using quotes, he's using scriptures to back up the idea it's, hey, whoever God put in power then that's it. It's the office. It's the institution you have to respect. So if, uh, if an Umayyad is caliph, you, you follow them. Okay. So that's one side of it. But, of course, there's the other side. And there are definite um, instructions here that a leader should be kind to his people. Again, because he's appointed to be the shepherd. Okay. So, um, one of the famous uh, quotes he used is he says, Islam, the ruler, and the people are like a tent, the tent pole, and pegs. Now, of course, this is like a reference to Bedouin Arab culture, right? Tents are really important. And again, you, you catch what he's doing here and sort of the criticism people have had. Um, you know, in Spain, in Cordoba, they're... Not, they're not living in tents. There is no desert. 
but he's making a reference, an image back to classical Bedouin civilization the tent i mean the tent is what you what you live with so the idea is you need you need all three of them right but uh, we can see that islam is the tent so that's the purpose right the only reason you have a peg and a tent pole is because you want the tent right uh but the ruler stands tall and holds it up uh and the pegs you know the pegs they're down at the bottom level but you still need them though uh, he, he lists a quote by the Khalif Omar. He says that if a ruler is unjust, quote, the burden is on him and the people must endure. So here again is the idea, you know, if you have a bad ruler, God will punish him. Don't worry, right? Uh, God will avenge, you just be loyal. Okay, now we know in Islamic history there were lots of rebellions, and the Umayyads actually fell to one of the, the first big uh, rebellions. So the idea is, you know, you should have left that to God, really, actually. Um, if you don't like the Umayyad caliphs, God will deal with them, but he put them there. And so with that, the idea of loyalty is very, very important in this book. Uh, he says there's a whole chapter on friendship, but one of the key things about friendship is real friends are loyal. He says that a sign of a good friend is one who is a friend to his friend's friend and one who is an enemy to his friend's enemy. Okay, so the, the idea that, hey, I mean, anyone who's against you I'm going to be against them. I don't care who they are because, you know, I got your back. Okay. So, I mean, this all fits with this pattern that he's uh, establishing. Well, after about 500 pages on rulers in government, and he's, he's actually only getting started here because he's going to go on for a lot more, uh, Ibn Abdurrabih switches to talking about good manners, which again is adab, right? and that's the purpose of this book. Uh, and so he introduces this section, he says, quote, We will now speak about learning and good manners, which are the two poles about which revolve matters of religion and the world. They are the distinction between human beings and other animals, between angelic nature and beastly nature, end quote. Okay, that's pretty heavy stuff, right? I mean, this, this is not just your mother telling you, well, you should have good manners in public. You don't want to embarrass us when we're out eating. No, I mean, this is, right, these are the two poles around which religion in the world, uh, this is a phrase, religion in the world, din wa dunya. Uh, it sounds weird in, in English to say religion in the world. Din wa dunya, basically, that's, that's everything. Dunya is the world. Everything earthly material you see here, din is everything else. I mean, din wa dunya, that's it. That means everything. Spiritual and material. Wow. Now, um, you might see why where a you know a hardcore uh, religious person, a jurist, is going to start to have issues with this. And I think this is good for sort of context. You know, we've talked about the the 
competition, uh, the, the conflict between the philosophers and the religious uh, authorities. And, and when we look today at the Middle East, you know, particularly the Muslim world, we, we just naturally assume that, I mean, in no way philosophy is going to compete with religion. But here he's talking about I mean, what is essentially good manners and learning, I mean, he means secular learning. These are the things which religion revolves around. That's pretty, you can see that would be a pretty controversial statement. But the point he's going to make is, you know, you can know the principles, you can read the Quran, and you can know, you know, that it's um, exhorting you to do good things and avoid bad things, but how do you know the specifics? How do you know how to apply any of that in real life? Aha, that's where you, the learning comes in, Okay. Um, he goes on to say, if a little child is not taught good manners and is not instructed by means of a book, he remains as ignorant as beasts and as deviant as animals. Wow, that's pretty harsh. Instructed by means of a book. So meaning you got you to gotta get my book. Don't just try to do this on your own. But again, right, we're talking about like really strict instruction on good behavior. So this is something, uh, I mean... You know, I, even if you felt like you grew up in a really strict household, I mean, you're nothing on this level here. Okay, so he talks about learning, and learning is very, very important. But uh, he says that there are two types of learning. That is which is used, meaning learning which is applied for something in the real world, and that which is kept to yourself. And again, he doesn't mean secret. He's talking about like head knowledge and knowledge you actually do something with. He says the first kind is good, but the other is harmful. And he makes a statement that whether you have great intellect or little intellect, or lots of learning or little learning, what counts is what you use. And he makes a statement, someone who has little intellect and very little learning, but who applies what they use for good is better than someone who is, has a great intellect and lots of learning and doesn't use it. You know, think of Sherlock Holmes and his brother Mycroft, right? Mycroft would be um, a bad guy. Not not the one in 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 the one with Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay, they make Mycroft uh, actually look a little better, but in the books, he's just a smart guy who sits around and gains knowledge. Okay, wow. However, a scholar should be humble. He says no scholar is a scholar unless he has three qualities. He does not scorn those who are below him. He does not envy those who are above him, and he does char not charge. He does not charge for what he teaches. Okay, I think if you applied those three rules to our academic world today, it wouldn't go very well. <laughs> okay, definitely not what he likes. Uh, and I just point the word he's using here for scholar. That's typically the way we translate it as scholar. Uh, the word is an alam, and is literally, uh, the plural of that is ulama, you, you've heard. It, it means someone who knows, literally one who is knowing. Um, so it, it can be a scholar, it can be an expert, it can be an intelligent or, or an educated person. So it's, um, you know, more than just someone who uh, publishes things in journals that nobody reads. He even goes so far as to say that learning is an act of worship. 
And it's clear from all the examples he gives, he's not just talking about religious learning. He's talking about all learning, learning about other cultures, learning about India. That is an act of worship. So here you can see why this would be controversial, right? He's, he's lifting learning up almost to the level of religion and kind of making the case that really, in a sense, it's more important because you can have the intent to do good, um, but unless you have learning, you can't really do it. Uh, now, we, we've talked about some of the episode, uh, in some previous episodes about the kind of trouble that this would uh, run into. And, you know, nowadays it's hard to imagine someone getting away with saying this. But, I mean, we're talking at a time when, um, you know, elite courtly behavior was at its peak. And so he could say something like this, that learning, I mean, learning, well, boy, that's just as important as religion, maybe even more important. He can get away from saying this. Um, and so he quotes many respected authorities. Of course, the, the prophet, he, he quotes Jesus to show how important this is. He says at one point that learning is half of what it takes to be a respectable person. And then he next talks about the importance of eloquence, or balaga, as it's called in Arabic. I've uh, always wondered why Arabic, which is such a poetic language, uh, chose such a, an ugly-sounding word to be eloquence. Anyway, uh, balaga, or eloquence, is, is more than just what we think. You know, eloquence, you know, someone who speaks really fancy. Um, this is the whole set of skills that a person is supposed to have using language. Um, and there are many, many of these. But um, this is part of, you, you, you can't be an adib unless you have this gift of language. And he gives many, many definitions of eloquence given by many important people. Uh, they differ slightly, but they all carry the basic idea. Uh, and one of the, probably the clearest one is from Khalid ibn Safwan, who was a famous speaker. He says, eloquence does not consist of a loquacious tongue an abundant babble. It rather consists of hitting the right idea and offering a brief argument. Um, and as always, as we've seen the source for language, you know, a source for a lot of things, but particularly when you want to find out about the purest language, you go talk to the Bedouin in the desert. And so he quotes the Bedouin saying, fewness of words and conciseness of ideas is the purest language. Now, if you read speeches from the time, you might not get the impression that that's what eloquence was. But, you know, I mean, really, things haven't changed. It's been like this throughout history. Even today, everybody says, you know, keep it simple and clear. Don't show off. Don't use a lot of fancy words and language. Just be direct. And then what do they do? They show off a lot of fancy words and language. So, uh, I mean, the same thing going on here. So, although, yes, true eloquence is being direct and very clear, uh, I mean, people talk in lots and lots of flowery words back then. They do it today. Okay, so um, there's then a lots and lots of chapters and sections on specific things uh, that we won't go over here. Um, but just browsing through them, you, you get an idea of you know, what were considered things that were important to be aware of. So there's things about how to address someone who was a friend of your father. You've got a section on that. 
right? How to express condolence and so forth. So these are the social situations where um, there, were, you know, there were strict rules. Uh, so at one point, an interesting one we find here is he's got a section on manliness or rajula, rajula. Uh, and he quotes the prophet as saying, there is no proper religion without manliness. Now, manliness is not what you might expect. Um, so it's not like, uh, you know, the Old Spice commercials or something. Uh, true manliness, according to this definition, consists of six traits, three of which are applied when one is in settled society, in urban society, in towns, and three when one is traveling. Mm-hmm. Boy, that's pretty, pretty specific. Okay, so the three that apply in settled society are reciting the Quran, going to the mosque, and sexual chastity. When traveling, it's giving food to others, having good manners, and pleasant companionship. So he's not talking about macho stuff by, by manliness, right? It, but it shows the leading role that men have in representing the household and the community, like being upstanding figures. Okay, so we have sections on debt, humility, patience, forgiveness, friendship, respect. Uh, and then the book does go into religious practice, but it's not what we might expect. Uh, so he's not talking about religious law or violations. He's talking about how good manners and dignity in religion play. So first off, he condemns excessive shows of religion or purity. You know, that is acting holier than thou, being showy about it. Uh, and he, he lists many great leaders who are shown to be humble, and they don't pass judgment on sleazy people. Like, so when someone comes to Omar and says, hey, this guy's a drunk, isn't he shameful? And Omar says, I know, I won't, I won't talk bad about him. And he quotes a hadith of the prophet that says, God has sent me to convey the true tolerant religion, not a heretical monasticism. And, and this, again, the idea of people who separate themselves, isolate themselves uh, from society, who act strange. And this is something that is condemned. In, in Christianity, they have monks, right? And they're seen as being very religious because they go off and live in a cave and don't sin. That's seen as something that's bad. In general, it's seen as bad in Islam, but definitely is being pointed out here. And what he wants to stress, of course, is, I mean, these are some of the people who are going to be the critics, who are saying, you know, you're too secular, you're too worldly, Oh, uh, you you know you're too concerned with pride and approval, and you're not being strict enough with religion. So he's throwing in these quotes that show, hey, you know, being too strict and overdoing it, that's bad. You know, the true religion, he says, is a balance. It's a middle road between not not being licentious and not being overly pure. And you can see how this would run into. Um, criticism from some quarters. But when you're talking about courtly courtly society where there's a lot of partying going on, right, and a lot of pleasure seeking, you can see why they would want to quote this thing, right? This is a quote, I mean, all these things are quotes that people would memorize and be able to throw them out. That's why we have a manual here. So when someone says, oh, you know, you, should, you shouldn't be having fun, you should be off praying, well, you'd throw out one of these quotes that you got um, from the book. Okay, uh, and so there's 
there's some some other interesting things he he throws in here. Um, you know, he's harsh on groups we would expect for a Sunni. He's going to uh, particularly when he's serving the the one who claims to be a Sunni caliph. They're very harsh on the Kharijites, on the Shiites, all types of heretics. Um, and one he's asked. Um, he quotes a wise man's opinion about the Shiites. You know, what do you think about Shiites? And he says every time he hears that word, he gets angry. And he says it's the letter sheen, the sound sh, sh, at the beginning of the word Shia that makes him angry. And he said, well, why is that? He says because every time he hears it, it's in a bad word. And he goes on to li- give a list of, a really long list, a really long list of bad words that begin with sh. Like shir means evil, shaitan, which is the name Satan, and so on. Okay, so the, I mean this is like a little bit strange. You know why are Shia bad? Well, because their their name, right? It's got sh, got the same sound as all these other bad things. Interesting. He skips other words you could put in there, like shems, which means sun. He doesn't throw that one in there. Uh, but anyway, this is enough to make the case for Abd Rabia. But I, I throw this in because it kind of shows what the use of this book was, how you were supposed to apply it. You know, when you take an anecdote like that, um, I mean, obviously this is not being meant as a religious book for great contemplation. You know, someone praying is going to say, well, the Shia might be bad because they have the, the sound sh in their name. No, I mean, obviously, you're not going to make a religious argument. This is something you would throw out, like, in a party, right, in a discussion. You can imagine we're all sitting around joking, and someone mentions the Shia. Oh, I don't like the Shia. Every time I hear sh, it's always in a bad word. And then you list a whole bunch of ha, 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 ha. Right, and that's more the idea of how this would be used. Well, anyway, that is just a brief, brief glimpse uh, through... Al-Aqt al-Farid, the uh, unique necklace. Uh, you you can find this on. It's it's. I mean, of course, it's out of. It's in public domain. It's not in copyright. So it's uh, available on the internet, both in the Arabic and the English. And I mean, you can just page through it and get an idea of you know what was considered good behavior and good decorum uh, for that time. So it's a picture of what life was like or supposed to be like at the height of the golden age of Islam. So thank you again for your kind attention, all your likes on Facebook. I really appreciate that, all your kind comments. Uh, That's what keeps us on the air coming to you, and we hope to be back with you again soon. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Shukran Jazeelan wa ma salama. Thank you.